Got that first part? Here's part two. Back to the beginning. I hope you'll join me. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for joining. So I want to start with a little poll. We got a little poll today. Let's pop the poll up. You ever done a Zoom poll? It's pretty easy. Okay. Does everybody see the poll? Give me just a moment, okay? I'm pulling it up. Sorry for the delay. All right, it's up. Everybody see it? What does Shabbat mean to you? I believe that Shabbat can be a great spiritual tool toward repairing the world um, and more, of course. Or I do not think it's helpful with repairing the world, but I find it personally meaningful to engage in Shabbat. Okay, so choose one of those. The first means it's personally meaningful and a tool to repair the world. The second choice means I don't think it's helpful to repair the world. It's just personally meaningful. Okay, so submit that. Give everyone a few seconds. If you're, okay, AJ, tell me when we have the results. Okay, I think that's everyone. Okay. All right, so it looks like to question one, I do believe that Shabbat can be a spiritual tool. We have 78% saying yes. 
Okay. And then 22% say, I do not think it is so helpful with that, but I find it personally <laughs> meaningful to engage in Shabbat. Okay, great. Okay. So my goal by the end of this series is that we'll have 100% agreement. I mean, 100% is always dangerous, right? But <laughs> close to 100% agreement that not only is Shabbat personally meaningful, but is, a, is the greatest Jewish spiritual tool towards um, us repairing the world. So thank you for weighing in on that poll. And I don't, um, I don't know who voted which way, and I don't take it personally if you voted against the whole thesis of this class series. <laughs> Here we go. Once an animal is trapped, what's its use? In the biblical era, after an animal was trapped and slaughtered, the animal's hide was removed in preparation for its use in the Mishkan. This is the activity that constitutes our 27th malacha of mafshit, skinning, skinning the animal. This skinning of an animal applies to all types of species, mammals, birds, and even fish. Any animal that has skin that can be removed. This malacha doesn't apply to cooked foods that one eats as food. For example, removing the skin on one's plate at a meal is not mafshit. Rather, it only applies to a raw, uncooked animal. Doesn't it seem excessive to need hides in a humble house of God? The rabbis discussed in various ways the limits of what hides could be needed and why. This, this, this passage is in the Babylonian Talmud Shabbat 102b. They say, there should be no poverty in a place of wealth. Why then does God need goat's wool from which sacks are made? We could instead have used three covers of scarlet wool and over them another 30 processed hides. So here they're grappling with this. Indeed, there could always be more added to the utility and the design of the Mishkan. The detailed recording could be seen as a form of moral accountability to ensure nothing more elaborate was done. Have you ever traveled through Europe and want to take tours of the, of the, of the beautiful churches with gold ceilings and billions of dollars of art on the walls? Nothing against those. I also enjoy that art. But that is very different than the, than the fundamental Jewish approach, which doesn't primarily want gold ceilings and expensive art on the walls. I would argue that the reason we have these long passages in the Torah detailing exactly what should be used in the Mishkan is for moral accountability, lest someone get carried away and think they need more excessive garbs, garb that they wear. They need more excessive art or gold in the religious sanctuary. We list exactly what's needed and nothing more. It's also worth noting how early in Jewish history, there's already some progress in the move away from using animal-based materials. The Shem Shmuel, that he was a he was an author, the Shem Shmuel Hasidic author, argues that the fact that the Mishkan had more animal-based materials than the Mikdash demonstrates this progress. Okay, just a reminder there, the Mishkan is the tabernacle in the desert traveling from Egypt to Israel, and the Mikdash is the temple that ultimately gets built in Yerushalayim, in Jerusalem, and the Shem Mishmuel says, ah, how do we know that God wants, uh, views this as progress, because the Mishkan uses lots more animal products in its building than the Mikdash itself does. Moving from animals to inanimate objects and building a holy place embodies the concept of concept of ma'alin b'kodesh. It's appropriate to aim high in trying to achieve holiness. Hides, of course, have a much earlier and holier role in Jewish thought. The Talmud records 
here in, in the Babylonian Talmud of Sota. The Torah begins with an act of righteousness and ends with an act of righteousness. We've talked about this before. It begins with an act of righteousness unto Adam also and to his wife did, did the Lord made make coats of skins and clothe them. And it ends with an act of righteousness as it's written and God buried him, Moshe, in, in a valley. So here we're reminded that the earliest idea of hides is the clothing of Adam and Chava. This pairing and juxtaposing of an aspect of the Torah's opening narrative and its finale puts into relief that progression from the use of the, in, of the animate, an, animal hides used as clothing, to the inanimate, a valley used as place of burial. But it's also, it also provides a source for the essence of Jewish ethics. My, my argument, the basis of Jewish ethics, halachta bedrachav, imitatio dei, emulating the divine ways. Right? As Christians say, what would, what would Jesus do? Right? And as, as Jews, we say, um, what, um, what is the most divine-like thing to do in this moment? Here's, here's, the, here's the core passage outlining this in the Babylonian Talmud. Rav Chama, son of Rav Hanina, said, what does the text mean, walk after, the, uh, after your God? It means to walk after the attributes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Just as God clothes the naked, so should you clothe the naked. And then it gives a proof text. Just as HaKadosh Baruch Hu visited the sick, so should you visit the sick. Just as HaKadosh Baruch Hu comforted mourners, so should you comfort mourners. Just as HaKadosh Baruch Hu buried the dead, so should you also bury the dead. And so this is interesting. It's very different than a Kantian universal imperative. It's very different than a mitzvah commandment. It basically says, what is the God-like thing to do here in this moment? right? That's an interesting way to think of Jewish ethics, because it neither is, is, it's not a floor, but a ceiling. It's a ceiling. And that is Kant's most valuable way of thinking of the necessity of God. Um, Not as someone who intervenes necessarily for someone like him, but as a model of moral perfection that we can strive to be like, to be like, because we know in society, um, we may have moral role models, but moral role models also, as all human beings, have their own flaws. And so we want to emulate a divine perfe- perfection, knowing we will fall short, but having a model to be like. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bury the sick. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to not bury the sick. God forbid. I'm going to visit the sick. I'm going to bury the dead. I'm going to visit those who are downtrodden. So mo- let, let's move our attention from the notion of an animal skin as a utilitarian item to human skin as a boundary. Human skin, as we'll see now from Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, human skin is also a a holy tool that helps to elevate us toward the divine. He offers a powerful thought here. So he was a reform rabbi. I say was because he retired from the rabbinate and has has desired to retire from Jewish writing even. He has some very interesting books on Jewish mysticism. Um, and now he wishes to engage in art. He does, he does art. Um, and he really uh, views it as a very separate era from his previous era. We've had him here at VBM before. And this, what we're going to look at, comes from his book, Honey from the Rock. Honey from the Rock. I think a lot about honey these days because uh, my kids love Winnie the Pooh. All through my my two-year-old through my seven-year-old, they all love Winnie the Pooh, which is great when they can all enjoy the same, the same thing. Could not several people be members of a single living organic unity? If one person can in sickness or sin be fragmented, cannot several people in holiness be one? Ah, I mean, if one person is fragmented, 
What does it mean for this idea of unity of many people? Where does a person end and begin? Is it really at the outer border of one's skin? Is the skin the boundary of the self? As if to say everything that is inside is person, everything outside non-person. Is this not saying that our least subtle sense, the sense of touch, defines a person? What about the smell of a person? If I smell your perfume or cologne or something else, um, is that not part of the self? An emanation, if you will? And what if our ability to see were as fine as that of the electron microscope? Is not the sight of the self an extension of self? When we came to the skin line, there, there would still be spaces. Or if we were, as we probably are, able to see infrared energy patterns, a person's shape would so change again. Or what if the influence a person has is not the extension of my kindness also an extension of self or, or the extension of cruelty? Are we not accountable for the extension? Does a respected person's boundary end with his or her outer skin? Where does anything begin and anything end at all? If all the cells in a body are replaced many times during a single lifetime, then what makes a person the same person? Ah, am I really the same person as 10 years ago if all my skin has been replenished? Why have we so ruthlessly superimposed borders on things? Fragmented the cosmos. Maybe there are no objects at all. Maybe we have only invented them. Agreed to pretend they are so we can exploit, use, and control hoping thereby somehow to outwit death. But we do not realize that the very means we have chosen to stay alive fragment us from ourselves and from one another and from our source of life and therefore are what kills us in the end. The fragmenting, controlling, separating, saying that one thing ends here and another begins there. I own this, control that. Extend my boundaries to there over yours. We'll have more, be more, live longer, but surely there's death. Suppose instead that we are all of one piece. Wow. So I hope that in our conversation, we'll return to this passage because there's so many profound implications to thinking about this. Of course, there's the idea that he's moving us towards mystical oneness, that once we've challenged the beginning of self, the end of self and the beginning of other, we have also challenged the whole paradigm of differentiation, of fragmentation, and moved towards the potentiality of unity, of oneness. We've also not just extended the self, but we have now assimilated or incorporated or absorbed the other. My child is a part of me. My parent is in me. It's not that I look in the mirror and I see my mother or my grandmother or my father or my grandfather. It's not that I see them, but I'm still me. They are in me. When I see my father's eyes in the mirror, those are my father's eyes. He's not, I mean, if someone's father's passed away, they have not passed away. Their eyes are right there, right? When I... When I experience a moment of empathy as a white person for a person of color, it's not that I see them, they are now in me. The empathy is not sympathy, that I look at them, it's not pity, it's not sympathy. I have now absorbed the consciousness for that moment in a way that's, of course, not disrespectful 
or appropriation, but but in a way that is empathetic. I, for this moment, have absorbed the consciousness of the other in the state of empathy. When I breathe without a mask, I am actually putting the self out there, not only with moral accountability, but my breath without the mask is now uh, the self in the air. Okay, there's many extensions to this idea. So the skin, the skin is a divine gift for legality, for legality. It is a divine gift that we can be accountable for our skin and have rights towards our skin because it's what we call a body. And the body is how we think about rights within legality to some extent. If you recall the idea we talked about, Ishto Kagufo, that one's wife was a part of their own body legally. So there was also an extension of skin. If we recall our conversation about Basar Achat, the idea of one skin with one's sexual partner, either that being a, 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 a sexual state or that being the reproduction of a new skin with a child. But the idea, the idea there also of the uniting of skin. Okay, lots more to say here, but let's keep going. Indeed, skin represents the self, but it also represents moral responsibility, defining where the self ends and the new person begins. In fact, the opening verses of the Torah suggest that skin, which represents the human body, should be united. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife. This is early Genesis 2.24, and they shall be one flesh. Rashi suggests here, one flesh. The child is formed through the two of them, and there in the child, their flesh becomes one. Up, oh, Rashi says, sex is about procreation. Sex is about producing a child, right? Okay, that's one view. That's Rashi. That's what he, that's what Basar Achat means. But the Ramban, Nachmanides, offers a contrasting view. Here's what Ramban says. And they shall be one flesh, Basar Achat. The child is formed through the two of them, and they are in, their, in the child. Their flesh becomes one. Thus the words of Rashi. But there is no point to, to this, since in beast and cattle too, their flesh is united into one in their offspring. The correct interpretation appears to me to me to be that in cattle and beasts, the males have no attachment to their females. Rather, the male mates with any female he finds. And then go their separate ways. It is for this reason that scripture states that because the female of man was, was bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh, he therefore cleaves to her and she nestles in his bosom and his own flesh, and he desires to be with her always. And just as it was with Adam, so was his nature transmitted to his offspring, that the males among them should cleave to their women, leaving their fathers and their mothers and considering their wives as if they are one flesh with them. A similar sense is found in the verse, for he is our brother, our flesh, to any that is near of his flesh. Those who are close members of the family are called she'er basar, near of flesh. Thus man will leave the flesh of his father and his mother and their kin and will see that his wife is nearer to him than they. <coughs> okay, so for Rashi, basar achat, being one skin, is about producing a new skin. It's about the, the first mitzvah of the Torah, peru urvu to procreate and have a child. For the Ramban, Basar Achat, one skin, is about intimacy. We nurse from a mother. We lay upon a father. And eventually we move away from physical intimacy with parents. 
and towards physical intimacy with a partner. This physical intimacy opens up the possibility also, not only of, uh, of, uh, of a heteronormative approach, but Basar Achat in a gay relationship. Um, the idea of Basar Achat, meaning loving, uh, uh, consensual intimacy, where skin is united in a way that brings us back to um, back to our our uh, our parental love, the mother love, if you will. I mean, uh, you know, my child was born, and uh, and we did skin on skin. They recommend more and more that fathers be a part of skin on skin because of the of the the biological uh, and developmental uh, uh, benefits to uh, a child being placed upon the skin of another. And mothers, of course, can be touched out, uh, and all the more so with 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 a gay couple. Um, but also here we see that um, another explanation for sexual intimacy can be that it is a return to our parents, not in a Freudian psychological sense about the desire for uh, you know you know we all know the Freud, but but um, but in the sense of um, um, that. As an infant, the most important thing a parent can do, well, aside from taking care of basic needs, is physical, physical contact, physical intimacy, physical warmth, right? The flesh, the nursing, the that physical love, the holding, the closeness, and we never lose that need. And so, and so, so um, uh, consensual, loving, physical intimacy, more than being about, you know ideas of sexual ple pleasure is about that return to acceptance, that turn to love, that turn to the comfort of skin. And this is what we see here in the Ramban around, around um, Basar Achat, to be one skin. So for Ramban, the goal, of a the goal is a relationship, the intimacy, a relationship that includes but goes well beyond the physical. But we know the tragic history and current reality that emerges regarding skin. What's the problem with skin, my friends? Bias. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory writes, if we think less of, uh, less of a person because of the color of his or her skin, we're repeating the sin of Aaron and Miriam. Oh, you want to ground racism in a biblical prohibition? Here we go. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moshe because of the Cushite woman. Here we say in Numbers. There are midrashic interpretations, that means rabbinic interpretations, that read this passage differently. But the plain sense is that they look down on Moses' wife because, like Cushite women generally, she had dark skin, making this one of the first recorded instances of color prejudices. For this sin, Miriam was struck with leprosy. Ah, how do we traditionally describe the sin of leprosy for Miriam? That she spoke lush and hara. She spoke, um, she spoke badly. Of, of Moshe. Miriam and Aaron speak behind Moses' back. He doesn't, he doesn't um, respond to it. He's humble and doesn't respond to it, but that's the punishment. What, what's going on here? This idea based on the drash that it is about Moshe choosing a black wife. That's what they're, that's what, that's the sin. Instead, we should remember the lovely line from Shir Hashirim, I am black but beautiful. O daughters of Yerushalayim, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Shlomo, do not state at me, do not, no, no, that should be stare. Uh, 
uh, let me fix that. Uh, do not stare at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. <laughs> well, that implies uh, that implies tanning, right? That implies tanning, but there's more going on there. I mean, these are these are people in the Middle East that are dark complexion, not just suntanned. Um, in any case, Jews cannot complain that others have racist attitudes towards them if they hold racist attitudes towards others. Don't complain about anti-Semitism if you're not going to battle racism. First, correct yourself, it says in the Gemara, then seek to correct others, right? Of course, it's not sequential. We can do both. We can, we can protect Jews, stand up against anti-Semitism, and speak out against racism, but you can't just pick one or the other. The Tanakh contains negative evaluations of some other nations, but always and only because of moral failures, never because of ethnicity or skin color. How awesome is that, friends, that we have a Tanakh, we have a holy book that does not, in ancient times, look down on, on other tribes because of their ethnicity or skin color, but only because of their moral failures. And what is at our good friend Dennis Prager? Ah, Dennis Prager! says, he, he says, what is the proof the Torah is divine? The fact that it, um, um, it makes Jews look really bad. If, human, if Jews wrote the book, what should it do? Make Jews look amazing. The Jews are amazing. We're like the holiest people. Look at the great stuff we do. Those people out there, ugh, horrible animals. Those people, be like us. What does the Tanakh do instead? It records every moral failing of the Jewish people. It takes our greatest leaders and makes them look like fools. Why? Not because they're fools, but because we take morality so seriously that we rebuke ourselves. We hold ourselves accountable, each and every one of us. We don't just protest the injustices out there. We see our own sins. We see our own failings. We are ashamed when we look at ourselves in the mirror, not in a paralyzing way, but because each of us knows we have enough power and privilege to be so much greater than we are. And although we love ourselves for who we are, we know we do tshuva every day because we could be so much more. We could do so much more. We could be of so much more service to others in our lives. And instead, we watch Netflix for two hours, right? Instead, we go enjoy coffee in the newspaper for three hours. Look, I'm not really being critical of those things. I'm coming off a little harsh. <laughs> enjoy TV, enjoy the newspaper, right? We should all have a good time. But we are aware that we can do and be more. And so our Tanakh, our Tanakh says, nobody gets off easy. Every king is going to be assigned a prophet. And the role of that prophet is going to be to speak truth to power and break them down, right? Um, of course, those prophets are not perfect either, right? But uh, that's another conversation. Okay, let's keep going here. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs writes here about the sin of racism. Indeed, oppressing others due to their skin color is as absurd as it is cruel. But here we must search among intellectual roots to consider how we might transcend baseless ideas. There are many different angles to take. Empiricism emerged to challenge rationalism, the notion that humans have innate knowledge. Let me state that again, because that was kind of a loaded sentence. You might think of empiricism uh, as the same as rationalism, right? Because there's mysticism, and then there's that which is, is rational, such as um, empiricism. But actually, empiricism, the idea that we're going to measure, we're going to have scientific data is something very different than the idea of innate knowledge. There's three different philosophical types of empiricism. 
Number one, classical empiricism. As seen in the thinking of John Locke, one is born tabula rasa with a blank slate, knowing nothing at birth. The idea of innate knowledge is totally rejected. Humans are born, they know nothing, they learn everything. This is classical empiricism. Secondly, radical empiricism. Here, William James famously argued that all knowledge comes from the senses. Rather than reason, it is experience that enables us to know anything at all. Moderate empiricism. While this approach still suggests that most knowledge emerges from experience, it also allows for some types of knowledge, such as mathematics, to be understood without direct experience, but purely from reason. Okay? That is to say, I don't need experience to know certain things. There are things that are hardwired in the brain. Others talk about language in such a way. How is it that children naturally learn language, assuming developmental milestones are hit? How is it that just by listening, these complex calculations, so someone like Howard Gardner, who is a linguistic scholar, not to mention Chomsky, but Howard Gardner at the Department of uh, Education at Harvard University, believes or believed, I don't know where he is today, people evolve on these things, like Chomsky did, like Wittgenstein did, believed that we are hardwired towards linguistic structures. Um, and this is not simply learned, but the brain is hardwired towards those structures. Indeed, one can sit in an ivory tower and determine what is quote unquote reasonable. Is X, Y, or Z? This is what's reasonable. Instead, we must experience the world and study those experiences. Reason is not valueless, but it must be scrutinized and tested. For too long, women, people of color, blue-collar workers, and the like, were considered to be fundamentally inferior. Some assumed, like Plato, or consider caste, caste systems like in India, that people had essences that determined what they were. Does skin reveal the essence of a person? Does it hide the essence of a person? Or do people not have an essence at all? What we know for sure is that the skin is not an accurate representative of, of who is inside. It is part of the story, but only a small part. A white supremacist is wrong to think that a black person is inferior. Farrakhan is wrong to think that white people are inferior. Let's say, uh, let me say something about Farrakhan. Farrakhan is complicated. Why is Farrakhan complicated? Farrakhan is, Farrakhan is a horrible bigot. He's a horrible bigot. He thinks white people are inferior. He thinks women are inferior. He thinks gay people are inferior. He's anti-science. He's he's a um, he's even flirting with um, uh, with radical far-right ideas that are very dangerous. He's anti-COVID precautions. Farrakhan is a hater. You can call Farrakhan a hater. And yet, there's two caveats that have to be made. He is historically a, an important figure to um, people in the black community. He was there with MLK and Malcolm X, but he's still alive, historically. Number two, he takes care of people. Like a mafia leader, he takes care of people. So what's happening, interesting, in Newark, I, there's professors who tell me that they love Farrakhan as a kid, 
because he gives them food, he gives them educational opportunities, maybe they get a grant from one of these foundations, they love him, and then they see his hate, and they move beyond him. And so people shouldn't be so worried about, worried about Farrakhan, the boogeyman, right? Because these kids are smart enough, unless they become haters themselves, as some of them do in the nation of Islam, that they, they, they move beyond him in many ways. Um, and yet, and so uh, we can be allies and support people in this community who um, uh, are, are, are blinded by such hate and yet, uh, uh, and, and yet still call it out. It's no difference that it's no different than someone deciding, this is not me endorsing anyone, that in Georgia today, that one of the candidates um, uh, both may have some problematic positions in regards to Jews and in regards to Israel, and those may be separate, they may be connected, and yet still most responsibly be the right candidate, even given those those uh, certain problematic positions. Um, we don't have to live in a world where we dismiss problematic positions and pretend everything is pure, nor that those problematic positions uh, mean that we're morally or politically paralyzed, right? And so uh, there's a lot more to say about that. But this idea also moves us towards the question of identity politics. There are those in the progressive camps, for example, who think more people of color in office, a good thing, doesn't matter who's the better candidate, more people of color, more women in office, right? Regardless of who's the best candidate, that is our role in politics, right? It's about identity politics. And there's other people who say, we want the best person in office. And then there's a middle camp, let's call it, who say, we want the best person and things being equal, we want more minorities represented, people of color, Jew, well, maybe they don't say Jews, <laughs> women, whatever the case is, right? And so this also comes to the question is, do we care about skin color? right? Do we care? And so we move towards an identity politics approach, or, or do we say we don't care, either say we don't care as a racist, pretending we're colorblind, we don't see skin, or we don't care in that um, we really want to move beyond bias, and we do want the best people in certain positions. Okay, this is all kind of complicated and could be a part of a debate, but it, it is a part of this question of, of skin color as well, um, because we can't always have our cake and eat it too which is to say skin color should be no factor and then say it should be a factor. So we have to, we have, to have a nuanced position in how we think about this. Okay, on Shabbat, when we look at our skin in the mirror, <laughs> yes, this is one form of activity that might appear creative, but that is totally permissible on Shabbat. It may look old or young. It may look brown, white, or black. It may look familiar or foreign, even to the person whose skin it is. It may look scarred or healed. It may have been used problematically as a space to write a, well, it may, it, may, uh, it may have been used as a space for writing messages, perhaps a voluntarily written message, perhaps chosen during a visit um, towards a parlor to celebrate a person's, to celebrate uh, one's, one's message they wish to, to portray, or perhaps in the course of expressing messages, um, that one uh, was tattooed, suffered by a as a victim in the Holocaust, right? That, that, that the ink on one's skin is a sign of suffering and oppression. But then we must transcend our skin and realize that it is hardly the complete and true self. Okay, to conclude, on Shabbat, we don't, quote unquote, skin. We don't skin on Shabbat. That is to say that for six days of the week, we can care about how we look 
our clothes, our weight, the softness of our skin, the whiteness of our teeth. It's acceptable. We're human and humans have always cared and will always care about how we look. Indeed, in keeping with the social aspect of ourselves, we should care how we look. But on this day of the week, even as we still take care of our appearances, we forget about our skins. It doesn't mean we just eat cake in our pajamas all day. <laughs> We're all, we are able to look good and take care of our bodies. It means that we meditate and pray in ways that tap into our deeper selves, reminding us that as mere mortals, we are just flesh and blood. But as eternal sparks, we hold a holy flame that must be tended to, to ensure that it never burns out. Okay, friends. That was a little long-winded, but uh, but skinning. I don't think anyone has ever taught the malacha of mafshit of skinning and moved in these directions. <laughs> but okay, floor is open. Oh, oh, Avital writes over there. Sorry, I missed this earlier. Um, very interesting. I, this is about Basra Acha, but there are animals who mate for life. Okay, so what do you mean by that? Oh, oh, are you are you responding to Rashi Avital? Rashi's idea that mating that mating uh, primarily being about uh, um, procreation, or are you responding to the where the Ramban was mentioning was mentioning that? Uh, where the Ramban was saying contrasting beasts with humans, where like beasts kind of just mate with anyone and then move on. Um, but humans don't. They choose a mate for life, but there are animals who mate for life. So how can oh. you really make that comparison in a, like a more salient way? Oh, you, do you mean mate exclusively? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, oh okay. Meaning, okay, so so, so th this is helpful. So what are some of the animals that have exclusive partners? Do you know? Some bird. What was Eagles. it? Eagles. Eagles and penguins and most birds, I think. Bir most birds have only one partner? Yeah, eagles especially, and even the penguins. Males? Even the males. Yes, yes, you, yes. There's a website I can refer you to too, because I watch the eagle watch. Okay, that's very interesting. I mean, I'm aware that some male some male animals restrict their female partner from having other male partners, um, but I, I I wasn't aware that male partners restrict themselves as well. Um, yeah. I'm not sure about other animals, but the birds I, I know, at least eagles and penguins and those types. I think smaller birds, too, but I'm not okay. sure about the smaller ones. Okay, very interesting. Uh, by the way, um, in, in uh, animal sexuality, there is one, um, uh, there is one type of monkey where um, uh, the females are sexually dominant. In the others, the males always initiate sexual encounters. But there's one type of monkey where the females always initiate, which is very interesting. Uh, I was just I was just uh, watching a video about that and research uh, and, and, and looking at some research on that. Um, in any case, that's very interesting. So thank you for that, Avital. Okay, any, someone else about anything we've talked about today? I have an idea. Yes, please. You Karen. know how um, in psychology you hear this a lot: uh, being happy in your own skin. Ah. Yes. What do you want to make of that? I don't know. I'm asking you. <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay, good. So, um, 
So yeah, so, so, so let's problematize this a little bit because it's worth thinking about um, that, um, you know, so let me say, let me say something else. So two nights ago for the first time, I, I, I love that I can talk openly with this group since we have, you know, that's the great thing about a learning series is that you come to trust the people you're learning with and you can talk more openly, you know, an extended learning series instead of a one-off. Um, so two nights ago, I, I had the most extensive, I initiated the most extensive conversation with my two older children about gender identity. Um, and I said to them, uh, I, after I talked a lot about gender identity, I then said to them, the most, I said, one of the most important decisions you'll ever make in your life will be to be who you want yourself to be rather than who others want you to be. And one of the ways people will want you to be is to be a stereotypical man as a man and a stereotypical woman as a woman. And you can choose to be that if that's what you choose. But you can also choose to hold your gender identity more loosely or differently and to decide who you want to be as something different than that. You don't have to be more girly, however you understand that, as a girl. Um, you don't have to be more manly as a boy, as a man. Um, and so what I was trying to say to them is exactly this point that one of the most fundamental forms of suffering in the human experience is not being comfortable in our own skin, that we do not look in the mirror and love ourselves. We never truly become comfortable in our own being. We're not tall enough. We're not skinny enough. We're not good looking enough. We're not smart enough. We are not enough. And that sense of inadequacy is so pervasive in the human experience that moves people to either towards um, a, a hermit lifestyle, not wanting to be seen and being embarrassed, or towards a narcissism of wanting to constantly be seen as a way of proving oneself's worth. And um, this, more than anything, I'm dealing with children, feels to me like a priority of helping children, of course, adults as well, but starting early to be comfortable or happy in our own skin. Now, let me say one last thing. This may be a physical process, a bodily process, coming to love one's body. That, that's what is kind of intended by the word skin, right? It's my weight is okay. My face is okay. My gender, my sex is okay. It's all okay, right? Or it might be going beyond the skin, right? Comfortable in my own skin and yet transcending that skin, that sense of self. Carol, what do you think of that? Muted. I think uh, it is a very important, uh, it, it has to, it basically to me that is synonymous with self-esteem. And a lot has been written and done with self-esteem and the need for it. So to uh, instill that in young people and teenagers or even younger uh, is very, very important. And I think in my personal life, I had a grandmother who built up my esteem. I lived with her. It wasn't just that I went to grandma's once in a while, you know, we lived together and she built up my esteem. I mean, maybe as a child. And I always felt very confident 
not, not, I don't believe I was a bully. I just felt comfortable. I just felt what I did and thought was okay. Amazing. You know, let me say one other thing here based on what you're saying here, which is that, you know, it's actually very interesting that um, um, I, I, I actually think and push back if you disagree, that young children are actually very comfortable in their own skin. Being uncomfortable in our skin is something we learn. We learn. Young children um, um, are, are, uh, don't have a sense of self-awareness of their skin. That's, that's how Adam and Eve don't know they're naked until they kind of mature to the point of seeing their nakedness. They're not even self-aware of their bodies, right? Uh, I, I, watch our, I watch my own uh, young children and kind of how they become aware of their own bodies in different ways. And, and then the other part where actually it's not like, oh, children aren't comfortable in their own skin and we mature and then we become comfortable. In some ways it goes the opposite. What makes us less comfortable in our own skin? Trauma. Trauma. Because trauma understood not even just in the most intense ways, but in, even in small ways, intense ways, abuse, right? Abuse is going to make someone uncomfortable in their own skin. Let's go to less in, intense ways, but still trauma. Um, the death of, of, of a loved one, a, a, a schism in one's narrative, like a divorce or a, a, fra- a major fracture right? A major public shaming that happens for, to a six-year-old in school or a 30-year-old in, in the workplace, right? These traumas that all of us have throughout our lives in various ways, these traumas give us a sense of inadequacy. I'm not enough because I have this scar, this wound, which wasn't healed, never will be healed, and thus I'm not enough. How do we become comfortable in our own skin once again while we hold on to those traumas? How do we engage in a healing process throughout our lives to love ourselves given those wounds? And apparently that negative energy stays with us. It it becomes embedded in our tissue at the granular level. So a child who loses a parent at an early age has great difficulty adjusting, and I'm going to put this in quotes, normally. That's right, 100%. And um, losing a child at a very young age is something that um, one will, I mean, one will never get over. I mean, losing a parent, one never gets over, right? But in a way that um, a friend recently, you know, uh, came in, my office, he's probably in his mid seventies. And um, it was for some reason, I mean, it was before COVID, but um, it was maybe two years ago. And um, uh, it was the first time I had asked about his parents. And when he talked about his father, it only took two seconds before he immediately broke down and was like a young child again. He said he, because his child, his father died at, at at a very young age, any way of thinking of him he returns to being that young, that young child, because that's the, where the relationship ended for him. And thus he is like a nine-year-old boy as a 75-year-old man when he returns to memories and consciousness of this father. Um, that trauma is alive at any time that it's, it's, it's reawoken.
Um, Shmuley, I wonder also, because our society is so materialistic and so competitive, if this being comfortable in your own skin is yeah. something that most people would say, no, not my skin, right. her skin. Yeah, right. Oh, yes. Okay, yes, very nice. Right, right. Yes, the in our materialistic society, both in terms of objects outside of the self. Although a few seconds ago, we talked about the idea of objects being an extension of self, iPhone data being part of the mind, but let's bracket that whole conversation. Um, objects of materialism, but also body of materialism, self-worth in one's wealth, self-worth in one's objects, self-worth in one's physical appearance, um, uh, and wanting to be like someone else. Um, and, I, once again, embracing, because here, friends, is where I think Jew, Jewish spirituality is very realistic. It's very realistic. Six days of the week, be a materialist. Okay, don't go overboard, but be a materialist. Go wash your car. Go get your hair done. Go get your hair dyed. Go, like, exercise as hard as you can because you want to look skinnier. Do whatever you want, like, to be a, in, in the materialistic world. But one day, be a radical spiritualist. One day, say... Like, okay, I live in a materialistic world. I'm going to like, like buy things that make me happy, you know? Okay. But one day I'm going to be a radical spiritualist and I'm, I'm, I'm really going to not care about that stuff. I'm really going to love myself as if I had no stuff, as if, you know, I had no imperfections or inadequacies. And, um, um, and when it comes to loving one's own, uh, one's own physical appearance, I mean, what a profound what a profound uh, uh, way to think of loving God, right? That God created this image. I am created in God's image. My image is a representation physically. Of, normally, we think of Tzalem Elohim as a non-physical spiritual concept, moral concept. <clears throat> but it is also a physical concept. To not love one's own physical image is to not love God. And so on Shabbat, we work towards loving divinity, however we understand that. And that also infiltrates into looking in the mirror and loving myself. But the problem is, if you're not doing it the other six days, how can you do it for one day? Because ah. that's not your normal way of yes. living. Okay, great. So my hope here is that we will live immersed in the world six days of the week. And by going radical on Shabbat, that that will naturally emanate into the week's consciousness. You cannot be transformed and it not have an overflow, right? It's like, it's like, you know, how do people think of a vacation? I don't go on vacation. I haven't gone on, on a, on a vacation since my parents took me on a vacation. Um, um, e e even, even our honeymoon, I sound like a terrible husband here. Even our honeymoon was a scholar in residence weekend. <laughs> okay, someone flew us somewhere. I taught somewhere and my wife came along. We made it a honeymoon. I know I'm a terrible husband, I'm, I'm, forgive me. You know, but, um, but it, a, one model of a vacation is mindlessness. I'm going to lay on a beach and veg out. Okay, I don't pass judgment on it. 
a, a more recharging vacation is mindfulness rather than mindlessness, right? I go on a mindful experience that actually brings me back, not just to without a new state of mind into the workplace, because then I'm going to be hit like a brick. Oh, I got to do all this. I wish I was back on the beach, right? But if I bring mindfulness, I come recharged. I come with a zest, with a love, with a positivity back into the place. So the mindful vacation, the mindful vacation is where one allows the vacation to not be, I'm so sad it's over because it's not over. It carries over into the other days. So too, the Shabbat that's like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not working. I'm just going to like lay on the couch. Okay. Then, oh, too bad Saturday night just hit because now I'm back to work. I'm back to the work. But if it's a transformative experience that says, I want to return to those six days differently, it starts to infiltrate. And so we allow ourselves to be materialistic. We allow ourselves to work hard, but it's going to be with an elevated spiritual consciousness because that day we're bringing it in. And so... So too, I go on a, on a date. I go on a uh, on a date with my spouse, or on a date with someone who I who I I want to date, who I'm uh, who's my partner, not because that experience is a standalone, but because it carries over. It carries over. It's not just about a meaningful experience. That experience is one that carries over into us doing the dishes. We build a trust in that hour of coffee together that is not just about the fun of that hour, that carries over to how we do the dishes, to how we do the laundry, how we think about that relationship carrying over. Um, uh, and uh, actually, this is interesting for exercise as well. It's not just that that half hour of exercise is helpful. Actually, exercise is proven to continue we could, that, that it affects our heart rate throughout the day. Right, it carries over throughout the day. It's not, so too with meditation. We don't just meditate to be in bliss in that half, in that twenty minutes or whatever it is. We do it so that that twenty minutes carries over through, into a state of peace throughout the day. Really, if I can take it in just a little bit in another Great. direction, please, when please, talking please. about being in our own skins. So yeah. I've been doing a lot more reading lately on mysticism, on Kabbalah, and Musar. And there's been a few who refer to ourselves, our bodies as a rented bio suit, which I find really interesting. In other words, our true self is the neshama. It's, it's what we do. Our way of being like Hashem is, mm. you know, being those midot that are, are, are those that make the world a better place. And not neglect your body, but seeing the real person as a person by their deeds and their loving kindness. And, and the body is just, as they say, a rented bio suit. And I really like that idea. Mm. Okay, great. So let me let me both um, accept that and um, offer uh, uh, um, another view in relationship to that. Um, I, I, I personally, as a, um, as a spiritualist, love that idea. I think that um, if we truly viewed ourselves as souls, right, we would have such a different relationship to our bodies. Um, this is how I understand the burial process. This is how I understand the holiness of the body, but that it's not an end in itself. That's why we should donate organs, because the body is not an end in itself. The soul is what matters. And this is why I believe in the, in the eternal nature of the soul. Uh, there's a lot more to say about that. Um, and so I really do believe that. And I think that one one of the, um, one of the great problems of the human condition today is that we fundamentally view ourselves as bodies, not as souls. So I want to accept that. And I want to say 
that I think that in addition to that mystical approach, I find great value in the rational approach that understands that the soul and body cannot be separated out easily. They're deeply intertwined. Um, and, um, and that's why the mitzvah is the central vehicle. The deed is the central vehicle for Jews, not, not meditation, not um, so, some act of the mind. The central deed of Jews is the central, the central vehicle for Jews in this world is action. It's social action. It's mitzvot. It's what we do in our time because we understand that the soul is only reached through, through the bodily engagement, through the bodily engagement. I want to say one other thing about this, and this comes back to our conversation about gender identity. And, and, I, and, I, and I learned this from Rabbi Steve Greenberg, who's a gay Orthodox rabbi and, and um, is a friend and um, someone I learned from. Um, and he said um, that gender identity is a balance of body and soul, just as Jewishness is. Jewishness is about the body, right? Because we are born a Jew in our skin, right? We're born a Jew in our skin, or if one converts, a male is going to get circumcised, or a male or female are going to go to the mikvah, right? There's, there is a physical process one is going to go through to become Jewish. And also, there is a very intangible, uh, immaterial dimension of Jewishness, which goes far beyond the physical realm. So too, um, the idea of the psychological and the physical Right, that one's sex determines their their gender to some degree. I have what one's genitals are will be deeply influential on, on a typical uh, gender identity. And yet, there's an immaterial dimension to gender identity that goes beyond one's sex as well. And so, I think so too here as well. I would love to see us go in the direction of seeing us as souls. And how do we bring the body along in that journey? Let me say one last thing, which is the most quoted teaching of Musar, but I think we can never quote it enough because I think this is central to Jewish ethics. Yisrael Salanter says, my spiritual pursuit, excuse me, my spiritual need is addressing the physical need of another, right? The spiritual need of a Jew is to address the physical need of another. That is very counter to how most religions historically have thought about spiritual missionary work. To be a spiritual missionary is to capture souls. I want to convert you. I want to make you more religious. I want to touch your soul. What the Musar tradition says, based on Yisrael Salantar, is my spiritual fulfillment is achieved by addressing your physical needs. Wow. That is how Musar and social justice inter intersect. That is how Jewish spirituality and social action come together. Because what does it mean to be a spiritual Jew? It means to make sure your physical needs are met. Right? That's, that is where my soul and your body come together. Okay. Is there, is there one more comment or question before we wrap up? So friends, um, I wish you a wonderful day and I give us all the bracha that we should be, as Carol said so nicely, we should be happy in our own skin. We should be happy in our own skin and we should enable others to be happy in their skin and create a society where all can be happy in their own skin 
and are not judged for the color of their skin, but for the content of their character. Have a great day. Thank you.